Please open with me to the book of Romans, chapter 10. It is great to be back. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 12, sorry, 12 to 15 of Romans 10. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear? without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask for the Spirit's help as we consider this text this morning. I ask for wisdom and understanding as I present your word. Help me to do so clearly and accurately. Father, we ask for the Spirit's help to apply your word to our lives and to our hearts and to our minds. Father, that we would be changed by it. And Father, if there's anyone in here today who has not called upon the name of the Lord, we ask that they would do so this very day, that you would save souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we will be voting this evening on being the ascending church for a church plant in Jamaica, I want to speak to you this morning on the topic of church planting. I have titled this sermon, The Necessity of Church Planting. I was listening recently <clears throat> to a message by Conrad and Bayway on the subject of missions and, and church planting, and in this message he pointed out that Their church in Zambia has now planted about 40 different churches in a 35-year period, over half of which are totally independent. And one of the interesting things that he mentioned was that the last couple of missionaries they sent out went out with a 100% vote, No, no issue at all. But there was a lot of persuading that had to take place as they sent out the first few missionaries. And the question that I ask is, is why? Why was that the case? Why was that church initially reluctant to do what it now does on a regular basis? And I think there are a couple of reasons why this sort of thing happens. First of all, humans are creatures of habit, even within the church. We get into the habit of doing things, our are things being done a certain way or not being done? And, and any time the, the comfort of our norm is threatened or disturbed, it, it, it can possibly cause us to have great hesitancy. What, what, what's happening? This is something new. When a church proposes to do something it has never done, or, or at least has not done in a while, or even that it does not do regularly, it can cause great hesitation or 
skepticism. And this hesitation is not necessarily a bad thing because we must be cautious when we are doing something that we don't ordinarily do. But, but we, we must fight against allowing our hesitancy to drown out biblical principle. And that's the other reason why I think that a church that does not plant churches regularly may, may be hesitant to do so initially. It is possible that the, the biblical principles behind church planting are, are not well understood. If this is not something that is preached on often or talked about or discussed often, it is very easy for us to, to not even have a biblical theology of the necessity of planting churches. In my experience with Christians, and my experience is limited in the Reformed world, but, but in my experience, it, it seems like many view church planting as an optional thing that only certain churches should seek to do. I once had a Reformed Baptist person tell me that their church was simply not a church planting church, as though that's a separate category of churches. I believe that indicates a lack of biblical thinking. Conrad and Bayway says, how many churches send out church planting missionaries as a part of their mission's DNA? Think about that. What is the, the mission's DNA of the church? <clears throat> many, many churches send money to missionaries, and that's a, a wonderful thing, but, but how many churches are purposeful about sending church planting missionaries? N not just writing checks, but by doing the work of raising up, the, the work of vetting, and the work of sending out church planners. Is this something that the church should be seeking to do? Is church planting optional? Is church planting only for certain churches? My, my prayer for this sermon is that it would cause you to see that, that church planting is a work that we should be zealously seeking to do. And that the question is not, should we be a church planning church? But, but rather, the question is, when, where, and who? And so we're going to look at several texts today, but I want to start here in, in Romans chapter 10. And the first thing we're going to see is the, the only way to salvation. Look with me at verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Two things quickly that I want to point out here. All people are saved the exact same way. That the need of every sinner in this world is the same. That there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. There, there's no distinction between ethnicities. There's no distinction between nations. Paul deals with this multiple times in Romans, and this is relevant to us today. We need to understand this, that no matter where you go in the world, the way of salvation does not change. This means that sinners in Holland need the same things as sinners in China and sinners in Jamaica and every other place in this world. So what is this universal way of salvation? It's faith in Christ. Paul says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what is it, does it mean to call? 
One source defines this Greek word as to invoke, to, to call on a deity for assistance or protection, especially as a recognition of submission and deference. MacArthur says to call upon the name of Jesus as Lord is to recognize and submit to His deity, His authority, His sovereignty, His power, His majesty, His word, and His grace. In faith, we acknowledge the deity of Christ and the grace He offers us, and, and, and we call upon Him to cleanse us, to save us from our sins, and whoever does this will indeed be saved. This is great news. Salvation is offered so freely. Dear friend, if you sit here today not knowing Christ, all you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord this very moment, and you will be saved. But this also leads to a dilemma. <clears throat> if salvation is the same for all of mankind, and the only way to be saved is to call upon the name of the Lord in faith, then what about all of those people in this world who don't know to call upon the name of the Lord? What about all the people in this world who have never heard about Christ? What, what about all the people who have heard only a false gospel that does not call them to put faith in Christ alone? Can, can those millions of people who have not heard the good news be saved without calling on the name of the Lord? According to the apostle, they cannot. They must hear the gospel. So let us look at the necessity of sending preachers. Paul takes us through several questions with, with very, very obvious answers to make a very clear point. Verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? This is very simple. Sinners must call upon the name of Christ to be saved. But, but how will they call on Christ if they do not believe in Him, if they do not believe that He is Savior? Is a person going to call upon a person for salvation if they don't believe that person is the Savior? No, they will not. This tells us that unbelievers need to know that Jesus is the Savior of mankind. So Paul goes on. And how are they to believe? They, they need to believe. They must believe. But how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? In other words, people won't believe that Christ is the Savior when they have never even heard of Christ. Or at least not the, not the true Christ. Sinners must call upon the name of Christ to be saved, but they won't call on Him unless they believe He is Savior. And they won't believe He is Savior if they have never even heard the truth about Him. Obviously, this means that sinners need to hear about Christ. So Paul asks another question. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul says, people need to hear about Christ through the preaching of the Word. 
Now it is true that everyone should be telling others about Christ in their daily life, but, in script, but Scripture teaches that preaching is one of the primary means that God uses to save souls. Speaking, talking, sharing is not the same as preaching. The word used for preaching here means to herald. It means to publicly and loudly announce something. It's for a man riding up on a horse saying, Hear ye, hear ye, this is what the king has declared. That is preaching. This is talking about the public proclamation of the truth. Now in our day and age, many despise preaching. We get rid of our pulpits and we replace it with a stool and a table because we don't believe in, in, in heralding the truth. We believe in, in simply having conversations. But dear friends, according to Scripture, there, there is something special about the preaching of the Word and, and how God uses it to, to save souls. I want you to think of men like Whitfield in the open air preaching. And thousands of people being converted. We, we can think about the, the, the Great Awakening and men like Edwards proclaiming the word boldly. And thousands being saved. And we can think of the Reformation, men like Knox and, and Calvin and Luther. What were these men doing? They were trumpeting the word of God. The same thing that the apostles were doing. But then we get into our day and age and we say, let's not do that anymore. We're smarter than God. We're smarter than the apostles. We're smarter than the reformers. We have a better way of doing this. Sproul says the top priority enterprise of the, the Christian church is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because people cannot believe or even hear about Jesus unless Jesus is preached. So the church must be committed to the preaching of the gospel to all men. Jesus gave the Great Commission to go into all the world to preach the Gospel to every living creature. Dear friends, do you desire for sinners all over this world to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? If so, you need to recognize that they need to hear the preaching of the Word. That is their great need. Perhaps you say, well, what can we do about that? <coughs> well, Paul asks one more question here. Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul's logic is crystal clear. If preachers are not sent, sinners will not hear Christ preached. Which means they, they will not hear and know that Christ is Savior. Which means they will not believe in Him. Which means they will not call upon His name. Which means they will not be saved. If preachers are not sent, souls will not be saved. That's Paul's logic. For sinners to be saved, preachers must be sent. Now the question is, who sends them? Well, there are two answers to this question. First of all, God is the one who sends preachers. We see this all throughout Scripture. We can look at Acts 13. We are, we are told multiple times that Saul and Barnabas were, were sent out by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth. Paul Smalley preached 
several weeks ago, talking about the, the, the call of an elder. And, and, and who is it that, that essentially calls an elder? It's the Holy Spirit. Paul says to, to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's the, the Holy Spirit who, who calls a man to preach. Matthew, Christ said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Who sends the laborers into the harvest? The Lord of the harvest. Matthew Henry says, it is God's work to send forth laborers. Christ makes ministers. The office is of His appointing. The qualifications of His working. The call of His giving. How shall they preach except they be sent? Well, if God sends preachers, what does that have to do with us as a church? Well, the church must physically send those who are called by God. We see this again in Acts. Acts 13, while, 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 the, while in the church at Antioch, Saul and Barnabas are called clearly by the Holy Spirit. But they don't go until the church sends them. This is what we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Do they go immediately? Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That the church formally commissioned these men who were called directly by the Holy Spirit to go and preach the Gospel in new places. They were sent by the church in Antioch. The church must send preachers. Sproul says, not every Christian is responsible to go on the mission field, and not every Christian is called to be a preacher. But the body of Christ, that is the local church, has the responsibility to send preachers and teachers and missionaries into the world. This is not an option. This is a responsibility to send those called by God to proclaim the truth. This is what we are called to do as a church, to recognize those whom God is sending and to physically send off those men and support their work. There are three major things that I think this should cause us to consider. First of all, the church must be careful to do God's will. If the church sends a man not sent by God, we are going against His will. But also, if the Lord truly is sending a preacher of the good news, and the church refuses to physically send him, then we are going against God's will. Well, you say, how do we know? How do we know if the Holy Spirit is sending a man? 
Has the Holy Spirit given that man an internal sense that, that this is what, what he's called to do? This is where he's called to go? And, and, how, and has God gifted him with ministerial gifts? And, and does that man's character line up with the qualifications laid out in Scripture? And, and is there a, a, a door of ministry open? And does the church have the finances to do that? This is how we discern the Lord's will here. Secondly, going along the lines of this, the church must be careful not to hinder others from doing God's work. If we refuse to send those whom God has sent, not only are we going against God's will, but we are hindering that person from doing what God has called him to do. Now, God will ultimately not allow his work or his people to be hindered. What one church won't do Because of disobedience, God will cause another to do in obedience. But what church wants to be the disobedient church who is guilty of attempting to stand in the way of God's work? I know I don't want to be that church. Thirdly, (coughs) the church must have a love for souls. Every church should love souls. And be burdened to see souls saved. If we desire those from every tribe, tongue, and nation to call upon the name of the Lord, we must send preachers to them. Remember, churches send preachers of the gospel for what reason? So that hearing about Christ, sinners would believe in him and call upon his name and be saved. That's Paul's point. Are we burdened over souls? Souls in Holland and souls all over the world. Listen to me. The the decision to send preachers of the gospel is not some cold-hearted, detached business decision. Do we recognize that? The never-dying souls of men and women are at stake in this. Souls that are presently in danger of hell fire. Souls that must spend eternity in hell unless they respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. And how will they respond to the gospel unless we love them enough to send preachers of the gospel to them? Do we love souls enough to spend the time and the resources and the, the sweat to send preachers of the gospel to them. But not only that, do, do we believe that the gospel is, is such good news that it needs to be proclaimed all over the earth? Do we treasure the gospel in that way? Listen to what Paul says in verse 15. As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. MacArthur says it is not the physical feet of God's preachers that are beautiful, but the wondrous glad tidings of good things that those feet carry to the ends of the earth. 
If we believe that, that preachers of the gospel are carrying good news, that the greatest news ever, how zealous should we be to find some way to send such messengers to as many places as possible, both locally and abroad? How purposeful should we be in sending out preachers? If we have been graciously saved, dear friends, through the proclamation of this great news, how can we not long to see this news carried all over the world? Spurgeon, quote, quoting another man, said that the great missionary question is not, can the heathens be saved if we don't send the gospel to them? The real question is, are we saved if we are not willing to send the gospel to them? Can a man experience the grace of God and not want it for others? Can a man actually believe that the, that the gospel is the, the power of God unto salvation and not desire for the power of God unto salvation to be, to be proclaimed all over the face of the earth? What we really think about the gospel is evident with what we are willing to do to send it all around the world. As a church, we must love souls and desire for souls to be saved. And, and we know <coughs> that sinners won't call on the name of the Lord unless preachers are sent to them to declare the good news of the gospel. Therefore, we must be committed as a church to recognizing those whom God is sending and training them, vetting them, and sending them out and supporting the work. We must if we love souls. But what does this have to do with planting churches? What, what does sending out preachers have to do with, with planting churches? The, the, this text tells us about sending out preachers so that others will call upon the name of the Lord, but, but, but it does not give us the complete picture. What are preachers to do when they are sent out to proclaim the gospel? Do they simply preach the gospel and then leave? No. What do they do? As, as the gospel is preached and people are converted to Christ, those people are gathered in and a new local church is birthed. I think it was Spurgeon who said, evangelism without gathering into a local church is like a man taking a sickle and cutting down all of the wheat and then leaving it in the field, refusing to gather it in. This is not just about the salvation of souls. The salvation of souls in, in all places should cause us to be zealous to send out preachers of the good news, but, but the end goal is the establishment of biblical churches. And I would argue biblical churches that plant other biblical churches. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. So let me give you several reasons why the, the ultimate goal of, of sending out preachers is the planting of new churches. First of all, church planting is the biblical pattern for missions. This is the example we've been given by the early church. 
They did not simply preach the gospel and leave. They, they gathered in the saints by forming local churches. Simply read the book of Acts. And this is the pattern you clearly see. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out to proclaim the gospel. And they do so in many different places. And then what? Well, we just skip ahead one chapter. Chapter 14, this is what we read. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And listen to this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Where did these churches come from? They were formed when they were just there preaching the gospel. People were being saved and, and those churches were being formed. They, they gathered in the saints. That is the example we have in Scripture. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for, for missionaries to go and do other things on the missions field. <clears throat> but what I am saying is that as we desire to spread the gospel here and abroad, we must largely do so through sending preachers who are planting churches committed to local evangelism and to planting other churches. In fact, that is one of the most powerful ways to evangelize an area. You can send one missionary there, and they can do some work. But, but what about when, when, when a church is planted there and, and, and preaching takes place and, and men begin to have burdens for souls and now you have this local church that is an evangelizing machine in its local community? How much more work can be done than one man simply trying to labor without a church? But secondly, church planting is essential to fulfilling the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is not just about the salvation of souls. The Great Commission does call us to evangelize sinners. But then what? To baptize them and to disciple them, to, to teach them to obey all that Christ commands. This takes place within the, the context of a local church. The, the local church is, is one of the, the greatest tools God uses to disciple His people. Baptism has been given to the local church. This is the local church's responsibility. That The man who, who goes off into the mission field refusing to plant a church and simply evangelizing is not fulfilling the Great Commission. That's only part of it. These men need to be brought into a local church. The women there need to be brought into a local church as they are converted and they need to be baptized and they need to be discipled from then on forward. That's the Great Commission. And dear friends, what did the early church do when they were given the Great Commission? They did exactly what I just described. They took the Gospel to places that did not know it. And once converts were made, they, they, they planted churches. That's what they did. And they discipled them. They taught them the Scripture. And yes, dear friends, we need to be committed to, to the Great Commission here at home. 
But we also must be committed to, to going to all nations, all people groups. Pantata ethne. All people groups. We are a people group. We need the Great Commission here. But, but every nation needs to be evangelized. They need to be baptized. They need to be discipled. This is what we need to be doing in every nation for every people group. I, I love the mentality of, of Conrad and Bayway. He says, this is, his, this is his conviction. The church in Africa must take its place in the spreading of the Christian faith around the world. Here's a man in Africa. Probably one of the greatest, the largest missionary targets for a long time. Everybody wants to go save the kids in Africa. This is where I, I dream of being a missionary. I'm going to Africa. And here's a man who has planted 40 churches in Africa. And he says, we need to be taking the gospel to the nations. He has his eye on global missions, living in imperfect Africa. By the way, thank God that other churches throughout history did not wait until everything was perfect in their own churches and in their own communities before they sent out preachers to plant other churches. Otherwise, we would not be here today, would we? Dear friends, if, if Grace Emanuel waited until, until Grand Rapids was Christianized until the, before they planted Harbor, guess what? We wouldn't be here today, would we? No, we would not. There'd hardly be a church in America if that were the case. Again, this is the example we have in Scripture. When the early church was, was given the, the Great Commission, what did they do? They, they spread the gospel everywhere and formed new churches, baptized new converts, and instructed them by teaching the Scriptures. And these churches were, were church-planting churches. It's a beautiful thing. You, you can see in Scripture Paul taking the gospel to Philippi for the very first time, and converts are made. And then what does Paul write to the Philippian church about 10 years later in the book of Philippians? I am grateful for your gospel partnership from the very beginning. From the very beginning, they were partnering together with Paul to take the gospel to other places. And Paul tells the church in Corinthian that, that I robbed other churches for your sake. In other words, that the church in Philippi was actually supporting Paul in his work so that other churches in virgin territory did not have to pay Paul. These churches were committed to the Great Commission from the very onset. They didn't say, let's, let's have a 20-year growth plan, become perfect, and then we'll start sending out local churches. If any church waits until it becomes perfect to send out a local church, to, to send out another church, there's not another church going to be planted in this world. Dear friends, the, the early church they, they turned the world upside down. Have you ever read the New Testament? Those churches had issues. Huge issues. But yet, they had a gospel. And so they sent out the gospel and planted new churches. And this is what we must do. We say that our mission is the Great Commission. Well, in as far as the mission of this church is the Great Commission, church planting is our mission, not a distraction from it. Do we understand that? 
Let me say that one more time. In as far as the mission of this church is the Great Commission, planting churches is our mission, not a distraction from it. Let me just give you two more reasons quickly why church planting is so important. (coughs) Church planting is a primary means through which God begins to be worshipped properly in other places. Do you desire for God to be worshipped properly in every land and every nation? You know, Paul, Paul did not like idolatry. When he was in Athens, what did he, he see? He, he saw that the place was, was given to idols, so it caused him to, to proclaim the gospel to them. He, he, he desired for God alone to be worshipped. But, but it's not just about unbelievers learning to worship God. It's about believers learning to worship God properly. John Piper says the, the worship of the true God is the goal of missions. Therefore, Christian mission cannot be separated from the church. Do you understand what he's saying there? We plant churches so that God would be worshipped rightly in other places. How can God be worshipped rightly unless His people are worshipping Him together, corporately, as a church, the way that He says we should in Scripture? Each and every one of us would say, something is lacking from our Christian life if we are not gathering together to worship God corporately. We understand that to be an essential thing in our lives. Do we desire that? In other places, that God would be worshipped properly. We plant churches so that God would be worshipped properly in other places. And I can hear someone say, well, we have a lot of churches here in Holland where God is not worshipped rightly. So, so what are we to do about that? True, we could p- potentially argue not many are worshipping God properly in Holland. But you come to harbor for what reason? Because you believe that we are. This means that there is an option for you. There is a place where you believe God is being properly worshipped. And that is, more that, can, that, that is more than can be said of many other cities, nations, and islands. Dear friend, I want you to imagine living in a place where there is not one church you believe to be worshipping God properly. And that's where you live. Perhaps someone will say, well, I don't believe we are perfectly worshiping God here at Harbor. There are elements of worship here that I think need to be changed or improved. Perhaps there is. But why do you come here instead of the other countless Baptist churches in West Michigan? Probably because you have weighed your options and you recognize that, that no church perfectly meets all your preferences, so you, so you have chosen a church that you believe to be closest to the Scripture in the way we worship. Now imagine living in a place where you don't have such options. Imagine living in a city or on an island where there is not one church that comes close to what you believe to be the proper way to worship God corporately. American Christians are probably the the pickiest people in the world when it comes to finding a local church. And I include myself in this. 
I used to, living in the Detroit area, I drove to Lansing every Sunday for church, and, and one time we hit a deer on the way home, an hour and a half away from home, called a tow truck. The tow truck driver says, what are, you, what are you doing out here? Well, this is where we go to church. And he's baffled. And he said, how many churches did you pass on your way here? Probably about a thousand. We're picky, right? And we say that it's because we have a high view of worship. And we don't want to be in a church where the worship is not proper. But if we are so concerned about proper worship that there is hardly a church in America that meets our standards, then should we not be concerned about the fact that there are Christians living in other places where the best option they have is a church we would not step foot in? Does that not wring your heart? This is where we have to check our hearts and say, am I simply concerned about my own family and my ability to worship God properly? Or am I concerned that God be worshipped properly everywhere? Is it about me or is it about God? If we are concerned about God being worshipped properly, we must be committed to planting churches that will worship God the way He commands us to worship Him. And lastly here, church planting is one of the greatest ways to spread reformation. When you think of John Calvin, what do you think of? Reformer? Theologian? Commentator? Expositor? What about church planter? Dear friends, how did the Reformation spread? There's an article from Ligonier that says this, that the Reformation fueled a new missionary enterprise. As the Reformers sought to re-Christianize Europe with their pure preaching of the Word of God and the planting of Reformed churches. That was their strategy. How are we going to re-Christianize Europe? The preaching of the Word and the planting of Reformed churches. So between a a seven-year period, between 1555 and 1562, John Calvin led a church planting movement overseeing over 2,000 church plants in France. Consider that. Those were busy men. Over a seven-year period, overseeing over 2,000 church plants in France. They had a lot of French refugees come into Geneva And they were sitting under Calvin's preaching five days a week. And their hearts were were, were yearning to go back home to France and to share the gospel. And, And Calvin said, no, you can't go yet. I need to train you. And so he trained those men to be missionaries. He raised them up. He vetted their character. And then he sent them out. And he corresponded with them and counseled them and oversaw them. Another source says that Calvin and Geneva sent missionaries not only to France, but also to Italy, the Netherlands, Hungary, Poland, the free imperial city-states in the Rhineland, and we even know of two missionaries sent from Geneva in 1557 to Brazil. They're sending the gospel everywhere. They're sending the Reformation everywhere. You see, the Reformation did not spread simply by Calvin sitting in his study writing books. Praise God for his writings. 
But the Reformation was spreading in his day through the Lord blessing the preaching of the Word and the planting of doctrinally sound churches. Can you imagine the impact of 2,000 new Reformed churches being planted in a nation? And the Lord was blessing those churches. One of those churches had 9,000 members. Another one of those, several of those church plants had, had thousands of members in their congregation. All of these men and women and children now sitting under Reformed theology. That's largely one of the things God was using to, to spread the Reformation, the planting of confessionally Reformed churches. Do we desire to see Reformation spread today? Well, again, perhaps someone may say, well, we need Reformation here. True enough. But we say that living in a culture where we still benefit from the influence of the Reformation on Christians before us. We, we say that sitting in a confessionally Reformed church. We say that living in West Michigan, the Reformed capital of the world. We say that with Reformation Heritage books down the road. We say that living in a city where an Amazon book, any book you want from Amazon, any, any good book on theology is a day away from you. Now again, imagine living in a place where Reformation has never really taken root. Imagine living in a place where Reformed theology is hard to come by. Most of us don't even know what that's like. Imagine living in a place where, where the fruit of the Reformed view of work and economy does not exist. Listen to me. G just growing up in Detroit, three hours away from here, was drastically different than it is here. Detroit is not as Reformed as West Michigan is. You, you don't see Reformed churches like that in the Detroit area as you do here. But do we desire Reformation in places that don't know it? Do we desire for other believers to know <coughs> and experience the Reformed doctrines we relish? How, how many of you, some of you have maybe been spoon-fed Reformed theology, but how many of you remember the first time you got exposed to Reformed theology? It was like an explosion in your head. Like a whole new world opened up to you. It was, it was a life-changing thing. Do we desire for other believers to experience the life changing reformed theology doctrine that would change the way they worship doctrine that would change the way they work that would change the way their marriages are run that would change the way they raise their children that would change the way they evangelize that would change the way they rule and govern if we desire to see reformation we must be committed to planting confessionally reformed churches. Reformation does not spread by us arguing with one another nonstop over theology. Reformation does not spread by us debating one another on the internet. One of the greatest things we can do to spread reformation is to plant confessional 1689 churches. Well, let us conclude this. I hope by this time you have some sense of church planting as a necessary thing. And again, the question is not if we should be a church planting church. Is this something we should do? But, but rather, is this the right time? Is this the right place? And is this the right person? But as we examine the possibility of planting a church, the, the, there are 
some things that we should think about. I'm just going to give you a couple. So number one, how, how should we think about finances as we consider planting a church? Obviously, we must be wise with our spending. And it is good for us to have money saved for, for emergencies. But dear friends, we must be committed to advancing the kingdom of God with the resources we have. I want to point, point your attention quickly to the, the parable of the talents. We don't have time to go over this whole thing. But you know the parable. There's a master and he gives, he has three servants. He gives one, one talent, which is a, a massive amount of money. He gives another two talents and he gives another five. The one with one talent buries it in the ground. The one with two talents trades it up, gets two more. The one with five trades it up, gets five more. The master comes back and he says to the two servants who, who traded the money and got more, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. And to the one who hid the talent in the ground, he says, you wicked and lazy servant. You, you, you know the parable well, so I won't go over it. But there are, there are several principles I think we should glean from that parable as we think about finances in a church. Number one, God blesses churches with resources so that fruit is produced. Right? He, he, he desires productivity. He desires us to take what He gives us and to steward it in such a way that fruit is produced. The, the, the servants who worked to turn their master's money into more money are called what? Faithful servants. The servant who gave back what was given to him was called a wicked and a lazy servant. Now I want you to think about that. All this man did was took what, he, what was given to him and he gave it back to his master. Master, you did not lose anything. I I specifically hid this talent to make sure that I did not lose what was yours. I gave you back what was yours. What does the master say? I want more. I gave you that to be productive. I gave you that to invest it and make more with mine. I didn't give you that just to get back what I gave you. I gave it to you for the sake of you producing fruit. Dear friends, if we take all of the money that we get and use it to live comfortably, padding our bank account, and the Lord says, give an account of your stewardship, and we say, Lord, we were good stewards. Everything you gave us is still in the bank. You wicked and lazy servants. That's the message there. I gave you that. Not, that, not so that you can say, we have a lot stored up, let us eat and drink and be merry and not have any financial worries. I gave you that so that you would produce fruit for the kingdom of God. But, but secondly, we see here that we cannot make fear-based decisions. That the servant who buried the money in the ground did so, why? Because he was afraid of losing his master's talent. And you know, burying money in that culture was considered a responsible way to keep it safe. So he was responsible. But he acted out of fear. The servant did what he felt was safe. He avoided taking risk with what was given to him. And for doing this, his master called him wicked and lazy. How so? Well, oftentimes, we don't want to take a risk 
because we're too lazy to do the work to make sure that our investments are secure. It's hard work going to Jamaica, isn't it, Ken and Mark? It's hard work spending time there. It's hard work thinking about what we need to do. This is hard work. Yes, it's hard work. It's going to take time. But being productive for the kingdom of God is hard work, and that's what God requires. If we say, you know, I even had hesitation in my heart this week as I thought about preaching this sermon. Lord, what if I preach this sermon and it persuades some people who who did not want to plant this church and it persuades them to say yes and something goes wrong? What if that happens? And I see this parable and I say, the essence of what he's saying here is it would have been better for you with that one talent to lose it trying to be productive for the kingdom of God, making good decisions, trying to be productive, it would have been better for you to have tried and lost it than for you to bury it and make no effort to produce fruit. That's what he's saying. We cannot act upon fear. What if, what if, what if? Yes, we need to make informed, good, wise decisions, and then we leave it in God's hands. But if we act on fear, know this. We won't do anything. And the Lord will not say, well done, good and faithful servants. He will say, you wicked and lazy servants. Thirdly, we must be faithful with a little before we can be trusted with much. The master said to the good servants, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And the wicked and lazy servant was unfaithful with little. So even what he had was taken away from him. I want you to think about that. It's a contradiction to say, oh, we only have a little, so we won't do anything. Because according to this, God is not going to bless you with more if you don't prove that you can be faithful with little. How many of you have done this with, with raising your children? Son, daughter, If I can't trust you in the small things, I can't trust you in the greater things. Well, you can't trust me with this, but you can trust me if it's something important. No. No, that's not how it works. If we want God to bless us with more finances, to do more for the kingdom of God, then we must produce fruit with what little we do have, not simply wait until we have more. Notice the man giving, given the two talents. He was not given five talents. He was only given two. Perhaps we're a two-talent church. We're not a five-talent church. Does that mean that we get to say, Lord, until you give us five talents, we can't do anything? Or does it mean that even if you only have two, you need to work hard to produce with that two, and perhaps the Lord will, will give you four? The one with two talents did not say, since I don't have five, I can do nothing. I'll wait until I get more. He was productive with what his master provided. I want you to notice the wisdom of the master. He gave to each according to their ability. Did you you notice that? It's not a coincidence that the man with one had one. The master knew something about him. He, He wasn't very productive. The master knew that. Perhaps the Lord has given us 
what he has given us to test us and say, how will you be productive for the kingdom with what you have? You, you want to do more for the kingdom, I know, but, but show me that you can steward this well. Show me that you can be productive with what you have, and then the Lord will perhaps bless with more. Lastly here, how should we think about church health? We can ask the question, is the church healthy enough to, to plan a church? Well, well, let me encourage you to think about the, the health of a church in two ways. First of all, we often think of the health of the church in terms of a church gets healthy and then it plants a church. As though planting is something separate from the health of the church. I would encourage you to think of church planting, a church reproducing as a vital sign of the health of the church. I would argue that healthy churches reproduce because that is the the biblical pattern. So it's not that you become healthy and then you reproduce. The question is, are you reproducing? Because that's an indicator of whether or not you are healthy. Yes, you have to have a certain amount of things in place before you can do that. But let us not look at these things differently. Let let us think to ourselves that, that this is one of the things that, that, that is a vital sign of the church. Are we reproducing? Do we desire to be obedient to Scripture? Are we, are we being faithful in our mission? But, but also, I would encourage you not to think of church planting as something that damages the church. Sure, it is possible that, that a church can spread itself so thinly that, that it's not healthy. That, that's a possibility. But generally speaking, we need to think of church planting as something that improves the health of the church and not takes it away. With what I showed you in Scripture today, church planting is our mission. Which means that when we are performing our mission, we are being obedient to God. Now, what comes with obedience? Blessing or curse? Blessing. Do we desire for God to bless us? then we need to be obedient to our mission. But also, as I've said many times, if we are not united in a common mission as a church, we will die from fighting one another. We will. I've lived that nightmare. We have energy to spend, dear friends, and we're going to spend it. And either we're going to spend it fighting with one another over secondary and tertiary doctrine and practices, or we're going to spend it fighting the darkness here in Holland and in other places. As I've said before, a church that is not evangelistic becomes cannibalistic. Comrade and Bayway says this about churches. If they are still self-centered, worldly, still just fighting with one another over nothing, you can be sure that the energy of that church is being spent and imploding rather than the gospel exploding to the world. I close with that. How will we spend our energy in this church? Will we spend it bickering with one another, imploding the church? Or will we spend our energy exploding the gospel to the world? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
Father, we thank you that you allow us to take part in the, the wonderful privilege of, of taking the glorious gospel to others. Oh, Father, convince us here at the church of our, of our mission that we would be faithful to you in all that you have called us to do. And Father, give us wisdom and understanding in, in the decisions that we have to make. Help us to be diligent to apply the principles of Scripture and help us not to live in fear. Help us to be wise, but not fearful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.